Well, this morning begins the season of Advent, and I think most of us are familiar, at least to some degree, of what this entails. We have a set of five candles up here in the front called Advent candles, but why do we do this? What, what is the point of it all? Well, Advent is a, comes from a Latin word that means coming or arrival. And so as we look forward to Christmas, the arrival, the coming of the Lord Jesus, but this season, we call it the Advent season, is a time when Christians reflect on the comings, plural, of Christ to earth. The first two weeks of Advent focus on the future return of Christ at the second coming, while the last two focus on His first coming at what we call Christmas. Maybe you've heard the song, The Twelve Days of Christmas. You've all heard that? You know, on the first day of Christmas, my true love gave to me a partridge in a pear tree. Um, I sure hope that I don't get a partridge in a pear tree or turtle doves or a French hen or calling birds or geese swimming, but I guess at least you can eat them. I guess there's one good thing about them, right? But where does that song come from? Well, it's interesting that the 12 days in the, in the church calendar, the, the year is, is divided up uh, with different themes and there's passages of Scripture that go with each of those uh, each, each Sunday, actually. The 12 days between Christmas, which is December 25th, and January 6th, there's 12 days there, and, and it's believed, tradition says, that on the 12th day is when the wise men who Marvin spoke of as we sang, it's when they arrived to, to witness, to see the baby Jesus, this newborn king. The day is also called Epiphany. So you might hear that word from time to time. It means simply means manifestation. It's the manifestation of Christ to us, to the Gentiles. The wise men were Gentiles. And so as they came to the house where Jesus was, it's, it's the memory, the commemoration of that, which is January 6th. Well, now what's interesting, there is a tradition that goes along with this. For some, on January 6th, they jump into ice water. Now, I don't know why, but I'm glad we don't have that tradition, at least not yet. The first Sunday of Advent, which is this Sunday, the theme is hope. There are four Sundays of Advent. Each Sunday has a theme. The first one is hope. So if you have your Bibles, I'm just going to read this verse from Isaiah chapter 64. And I find it interesting how how so much of what I'm speaking of this morning we kind of addressed, Derek did in our adult Sunday school class. But in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 1, Isaiah cries out to God. And this happens to be one of my favorite verses. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, and that the mountains would tremble before you. I just like the sound of that. I'm not sure that my motives are pure, though. I'll have to acknowledge that. The children of Israel were seemingly on this, in this endless cycle, on this roller coaster. They would follow the Lord God. They would obey His commandments. Then they would become complacent. They would look to the peoples around them. They would stray away from keeping His law. They would fall into sin. Then they would fall into judgment. And then they would cry out to mercy. God would repent. Or they would repent. God would bring uh, restoration to them. 
And then the same thing would happen again. And so it's almost in this roller coaster. Isaiah is simply crying out to God for God to do something in this world that has just seemed to be on this roller coaster trajectory. But it's for more than just the children of Israel. Look at verse 2. The second part of that. Come down to make your known, your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. Yes, Isaiah wanted them to be set free, but he wanted the nations, the peoples of the world, to see God in power. He's calling for God the Creator to move among the nations of the world that He would be known. And that's no different than the cry that we have today. That people would know the living God. But the fact is, the heavens have been rent. God has shown Himself. Emmanuel, God with us, has come. Isaiah's prayer has been answered partially. But the world is still a mess. And we continue to cry out for Him to do it again and again. To show Yourself to the world. We continue to pray as Jesus taught us that our Heavenly Father, that His kingdom would come and that His will would be done on this earth as it is in heaven. So we wait. We wait in hope. But just what is hope? The dictionary says, hope is an optimistic state of mind that is based on an expectation of positive outcomes with respect to events and circumstances in our lives and in the world at large. Okay, it's this, it's this state of mind, this expectation. That's what the dictionary says. It also says to want something to happen, to be true, and usually have good reason to think that it might. Noah Webster, from a Christian worldview, he gives a similar definition but he adds something of great weight to that. He says, confidence in a future event, the highest degree of well-founded expectation. The New Testament, in the New Testament, hope never indicates a vague or fearful anticipation, but always the expectation of something good, a good outcome. Now, some of you place a lot of hope in a football team. It's not biblical. But it's more in the line of wishful thinking, and sometimes we might even think it's just luck, right? Because there is always that element of fearful expectation, right? Because it doesn't rest on something solid. It's on man. And there's nothing wrong with, with that, hoping that way. Biblical hope is always focused on something that does not change. In fact, it cannot change. The term, the word is immutable. None of us, when we woke up this morning, looked out of our window 
and said, boy, I sure hope the sun comes up today. Why did we not say that? Because we know that it will. But, the fact is, Scripture does tell us, Joel tells us, and Jesus quoting Joel says that at some point, the sun won't come up. The moon won't shine. And the stars will go dark. But we don't worry about that, do we? Because our hope is in something that is unchangeable. Someone that is unchangeable. Hope, as described in Scripture, is not in the sun itself as this flaming ball of of molten hot gas that is just giving off this light and heat. But in the one who keeps that sun burning and at the right distance from the earth. Actually, our hope is in the one who made it. New Testament hope is so fundamental that as Christians, we are described in 1 Peter chapter 3 verse, or chapter 1 verse 3 as having been reborn into a living hope. A living hope, it's alive. It's growing. It's thriving. It's moving. It does things. It's not stagnant in any way. You've all heard, probably most of you heard of what a living will is. It's a document, an official document, that states your will or your desire of what should happen or shouldn't happen in the event that you are incapable of making a medical decision. You're still alive, but you're incapacitated. You can't make a decision. So what you have done is you've created this document, you've had it witnessed, you've had it signed, and that becomes what you want to happen if you can't make the decision while you're still alive. A living hope is the kind of hope that thrives when outwardly there seems to be no reason to hope. Because that hope does not depend on outward circumstances or events. But notice how Isaiah is asked what he's asking God to do. He says, rend the heavens, just split them apart, make yourself known. Not for some cosmic spectacle so we can see this great light show in the heavens. The Pharisees were guilty of that. Herod was guilty of that. Wanting to see, well, just do some magic for us. It's nothing like that at all. But Isaiah wants it to be obvious to everyone. And then he uses an example. He says, just like fire consumes brush when it's burning, or fire makes water boil. He said, make it that obvious to the nations that they see you. And the result of that, them witnessing that is that they will quake. They will tremble in your presence. Lord, let your enemies, our enemies, see you. Act in power and might to the point, as Philippians tells us, that every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what Isaiah was crying out thousands of years ago. That's what we cry out for today. The living hope that we possess believes that there is no question if God can or that He will. The question is, is when? Isaiah said, do it now. And we echo 
his words. Do it now. Lord, we want to see it. But is that our ultimate hope? Is our ultimate hope just to see the heavens ripped open and God being seen? I don't think so. Is that the hope that Peter tells us that we are to be able to explain to someone when they ask us about the hope that we have? What is that hope that we have? Is it that? Or is it more? We would all say it's more. So turn now to Romans chapter 8. We're going to spend some time in Romans chapter 8, and we're going to be jumping uh, through some several different verses. I, I heard a, a podcast this week about the importance of expository preaching. I know Jim and Rob and I, we've talked about that. It's where you go through a whole book, verse by verse, and we, we do that a lot. But what I, what I, when, I, when I heard that, this morning the theme is hope. There's not one passage of Scripture that just speaks about hope. So as, as Paul wrote the letters, as the Gospel was put together, it, it's, it's a tapestry. We learn little bits and pieces. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he wrote one thing. And then he added something that he wrote to someone else. And so we can weave that together. So that's essentially what we're doing this morning. But in Romans chapter 8, we're going to begin reading in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Let me read that again. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now remember, Paul wrote this after the Lord Jesus had gone back to the Father. Now Paul isn't saying that our present sufferings aren't real. They are. He isn't saying to tell us to just just suck it up and quit being a crybaby and move on. He's not saying that at all. He's not diminishing in any way the sufferings that we endure. And sometimes people suffer horrific things. But what he is saying is that as we go through life feeling and dealing with these sufferings, as hard as they are, they can't begin to compare in significance to the glory that will be revealed to us. As hard as life can get, it's nothing compared to what is coming. It's interesting that time, as the Jews believed, was divided into two sections. Time to the Jewish people was linear. It had a beginning, and time will have an end. Although I wonder. But anyway. But it's linear. And there's two sections. It's not circular. Time is not circular. That's Hinduism, Buddhism, and a lot of those others. It just keeps going round and round and round. Sometimes it seems like that, doesn't it? But God is moving. And there's two sections that the Jews believe in. Scripture teaches. There's the present age. And there's the age to come. We are in this present age, but there's an age that is to come that is not yet. So when Paul talks about the sufferings of this present age aren't worth comparing 
to the age that is to come. What, what did he have in mind? The age to come is in a completely different category than the present age. It's not like the present age, but it'll just be nicer. It won't be quite as hard. It won't rain too much, and it'll rain just enough. You know, that lug nut that I talked about in Sunday school won't get stuck. It's not like that kind of thing. And you might wonder, what is he talking about in Sunday school? Anyway, it won't be the same world, just better. Dressed up in some way, it will be new. The early Christians in the first few centuries believed that God would do for the whole cosmos, the whole universe. And it's interesting, the definition of cosmos. The universe as seen as a well-ordered whole. So when we think of the cosmos, that's, that's the idea. It's well-ordered. It's designed. I find interesting that, and I believe this is correct, is our position in the universe, the earth, the constellations, the stars, and all that, if we were in a different spot, we couldn't even see them. We would just see a band of light. Because everything is in is set in space to be seen from earth. Isn't that interesting? Wonder how that happened. It's a well ordered whole. That's what cosmos means. Okay. The early Christians in the first few centuries believed that God would do for the whole cosmos what he had done for Jesus at the resurrection. You've heard the phrase, I'm sure, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. That's not really fair to mama, is it? (laughs) The fact is, if daddy ain't happy, it's not true that nobody cares. But if daddy ain't happy, or sister ain't happy, or brother ain't happy, it affects the whole family, doesn't it? And so it is with creation. Adam, and by extension we, have affected and infected the creation with sin and by sin, and ain't nobody happy, right? The other night at home we were playing a little card game, I don't remember what it's called, but you were given a card and it's got a question on there. You're supposed to answer. So I don't know. I just walked into the room and they handed me this card. I think I'm beginning to know why now. What is something that is sentimental to you? Being such a sentimental guy, I couldn't think of anything. <laughs> Lincoln was given the question, what is something that has irritated you? You know, it wasn't very long until all of us were irritated. It's just, we were all infected as we started thinking about that. It's amazing. So, what I'm saying is, is that as we, as sin has permeated to come into our world, everything is infected. Everything is affected. We, as well as creation. Now look at verse 20 in Romans chapter 8. Paul says that as a result of sin, the cosmos, the creation, all of it, including ourselves, have been subjected to frustration. And I'm sure you all know that feeling, to be frustrated about something or someone. 
But what's interesting, the early Christians believed that what God created was good then when He created it, but also now. Even though it's frustrated, it is still good. Do we think that way? Derek talked in our Sunday school about image. You know, images that are in Scripture that, that give an idea, that try to make a point, I guess. Here's an illustration, an image that pales in comparison, but I'll try to explain it as we go through it. What sinful man has done to the cosmos is like a child who fills their plate with food, delicious food, that someone spent a lot of time, effort, and it took wisdom to make that food. And they did it as a gift for others to enjoy. So this child comes, piles the food on his plate, goes and sits down, takes two bites, and then throws the rest in the trash. It is selfish. It is wasteful. And is it, it is an affront to the one who made it. The food is still good. It's still edible, even though it's in the trash can. The food hasn't changed. Its environment has changed. Everything around it is now having an effect on that food, but it's still edible. I remember Carl saying when he was a boy, he remembers, I think it was his mother, going to the, to the army base and asking the cook to not throw the coffee grounds into the garbage can on everything else. Because it made it too hard when they took the garbage to go through it to find edible food the coffee grounds had contaminated it. Can you imagine? So what this, what it shows is that there's no care, there's no, it shows a selfishness, it shows pride, and it's an affront to the one who prepared the food. That food is still good, but now it's frustrated. When God who created everything good is ignored, when He is not given thanks, or His creation is used in a way that He has not intended it to be used. It shows selfishness. It shows pride. But it also reveals a form of worship of the creation rather than the Creator. We think more of it than we think of Him. Back in the Garden of Eden, we know that story very well, there was two trees in the middle. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Both of those trees were good. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was beautiful to look at. It wasn't an ugly tree that kept them away from it. It was a beautiful tree. Its fruit looked beautiful. It looked, they looked delicious. And they probably were. But that tree was off limits, at least for the, the time. It wasn't the fruit that made Adam and Eve sick, that brought frustration to the cosmos. It was their disobedience to the one who had made the tree. And we know the consequences of their disobedience. It brought judgment 
It brought immediate judgment. And it brought long-lasting judgment. But what's interesting, in the middle of God pronouncing that judgment on the cosmos, He gave them and us hope. He gave them a promise. He spoke it to the serpent. Imagine that. In Genesis 3.15, He says, I will put enmity. Enmity is a state of continual, deep-seated hostility between your offspring and hers. And then God says this, but He will crush your head and you will strike His heel. Right in the middle of that judgment, God gives hope. Someday the offspring of Eve will defeat the serpent. And we know that to be the Lord Jesus. And all that frustrates God's good creation, that'll end. You talk about image. Here's a picture. This came to me this morning as I was sitting at home running through this. So Satan is pictured as, is as a serpent in the garden. And this promise that he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Satan has been unleashed in this world since Adam and Eve took that bite. And he's been running roughshod over everything. And then Jesus came into the world. Satan did everything he could while Jesus was on this earth to try to kill him. The storms, Herod, the people, you name it, he tries to destroy him. And then came the crucifixion, and Satan thought he had him. And it's as though at that moment, Jesus grabbed Satan behind the neck. And Satan is just lashing out. He's that close. And then at the resurrection, I can picture this. Jesus, ever since, has been standing there with His heel on the head of Satan. And He's just holding Him there. He can't do anything but than what the Lord Jesus gives Him the authority to do. His tail, His body is just thrashing everything. And Jesus is just about ready to crush His head. Picture that. To bring an end to him. He'll be thrown into the lake of fire. Hope was born even in that tragic moment 4,000 years ago. Or 6,000 years ago. 4,000 years later, Jesus came and they laid him in a manger of all places. But that's all past. That's history. That's all been done. Paul continues in verse 24 of chapter 8 in Romans. For in this hope we are saved. But hope that is seen or realized is no hope at all. It's no longer hope because it's been realized. Who hopes for what he already has? Nobody. So there must be something more beyond this. Paul wrote to Titus in chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. For the grace of God has appeared in the past, he has come that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us, this grace, this gift teaches us 
to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. When? In this present age. Verse 13, while we wait for the blessed hope. What is that blessed hope? The glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The rending of the heavens and His return. But then what? Once He appears, then what? What will that be like? Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. It's an incredible verse. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save or to bring salvation to those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Those who have called on the name of Christ, we are saved. We are saved from our sins, from the eternal consequences of our sins, but there is still some saving that is yet to come. Salvation means to bring, to bring safely through, to rescue, to deliver, to preserve. In Colossians, Paul writes, when Christ appears, we shall see Him in His glory. Glory is dazzling luster, majesty, dignity, splendid array, incredible to behold. We will see Him in His glory. But there's something else. It gets better. If that's possible. John writes in 1 John 3 that we are already children of God. But at His appearing, when He returns, we won't only see Him as He is, but we will be like Him in the twinkling of an eye. John is echoing what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15. And that is a chapter that we should know. If we don't know it word for word, we should know everything in that chapter. It is so comforting. It talks about the future, about the dead in Christ and we and what will happen. But I want to finish up this morning in Romans chapter 8. We'll start in verse 19. For the creation waits. Waiting is it expects. It is looking for in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. That's us. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Here's a question. Why was the earth itself frustrated? The earth did nothing wrong. The ground did nothing wrong. Trees didn't do anything wrong. The stars, the planets, they didn't do anything wrong. Adam and Eve were the one that sinned. And we. So why was the earth frustrated? Why was it cursed? Because we and the earth are inseparably connected. We were created for this earth 
to live on this earth. We can't live outside of this earth. And the earth was created for our benefit, for our blessing, for our use. And what we see in our day and every day is that the world out there, the forces of evil, are trying to separate the two. Don't touch the, the ground. Don't, don't do anything to it. It's sacred. It's baloney. God didn't create it that way. He created it for our good, for our benefit. We are to use it and we are to cultivate it. Make it flourish. Not to destroy it. Paul is saying that the earth is also waiting in hope. Think of that. It's waiting for us to be saved. Verse 22, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. We don't go outside and hear the earth groaning. It's just a picture of what's happening. It's just, it's this struggle. Frustration. He continues, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Now, let's stop there for a second. First fruits in the Old Testament was a sample taken, the first fruit, literally the first fruits, and that was offered to the Lord as a thanksgiving offering. But it was an indication of a much grander and larger harvest that was coming. So Paul says that we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we have the Holy Spirit that lives in us. But it's just a sample of what is to come. As glorious and powerful as the Spirit is in the life of the believer, the way I would say it is we ain't seen nothing yet. It's going to get far beyond what we can even think or imagine. And we groan inwardly as we eagerly wait for our adoptions, talked about that in Sunday school, to sonship. And this is what I want us to get. The redemption of our bodies. Redemption does not mean scrapping and starting over with a clean slate. Aaron runs a scrapyard, not a redemption yard. Okay? He takes all that stuff and it's remelted and it's made into something new. That's not what redemption is. Redemption is liberating that which has come to be enslaved. So the glorious hope for all believers in Christ is that someday, whether we are dead Our cemetery is full of Christians who have gone on. They have died. But those bodies are going to be redeemed. Not some soul-spirit thing floating around. Uh Uh-uh. That's not what Paul says. They will be redeemed. They will be set free. And we shall be like Christ. Did he have a body? He had all five senses still intact. And so will we. We celebrate Advent for what happened long ago and for what is still to come. 
Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. He has and He will. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for the hope that You have given us. We see hope in the manger. We see the hope of our eternal destiny and destination to be made like Christ with new, redeemed, resurrected bodies that we can't imagine. But Father, our hope is in You. Our trust is in You. Our faith is in You. Not in ourselves that we can do this. Because we can't. But You can. So Father, help us to live in hope as we live in a world that is flying apart. You are not. And Your promises are sure every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.